Okay. <clears throat> Let's jump in here. Uh, you might have some questions. Those that went to the seminar I did earlier on the battle for God. And we will we will go back to those maybe later. Uh, we, we got an hour and a half here. I don't know how much time we'll actually spend. But I promised in the brochure that I do egalitarianism. So that's what we're going to do. There is a handout in the back. That'll be part two of egalitarianism. I'm going to, I'm going to go back first of all and do some history, uh, some background, and then I'm going to look at some modern stuff, which is what you have in your hand if you picked it up. So it's a, kind of a two-parter. Uh, I don't necessarily want to spend all morning on that, all afternoon, but uh, just going to pick that out. And then we'll go back to some other things uh, as you like. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this time together. Pray that we can uh, understand your word in relationship to uh, these various issues, uh, especially, first of all, the egalitarian type issues. Lord, we want to be, uh, or be fair, but we want to be biblical. We pray that we can do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, with the egalitarian issue, I'm going to go back and look at this. And this, uh, this PowerPoint kind of goes along with something I did at my church. I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians. Did chapter 11 recently. I didn't. I don't use PowerPoints when I'm preaching, but I. But on Wednesday night, I followed up with Q and A, uh, and used this PowerPoint on Wednesday night. So, so some of the slides are a little bit uh, something you don't even need to know about, really. Like, um, like what traditions that they already know. In First Corinthians 11, too, they already knew a bunch of stuff. What did they know? So that's that's what that question is about. But uh, they knew that men and women were equal in Christ. They knew that. They've been taught that. Now, this is where I want to get into the history. That's where we'll start looking at modern history and the egalitarian, complementarian issues. In 1969, uh, when the progressive revisionist uh, view concerning the women, role of women began to appear, nothing new in the way of scholarship had been discovered, but the spirit of the age has changed. That, that's a quote from Douglas Harnock, uh, one of our guys in the Voice magazine recently. So I, uh, I complimented him on this wonderful quote, and he was exactly on the money. Nothing really changed. Uh, our exegesis, our history, our archaeology, uh, whatever else we want to look at, hasn't changed, but the spirit of the age has changed. And so uh, he, he really nailed that, I think, on that particular quote. And, and he's right. That, that 1969, the 60s and 70s is where everything changed. Uh, uh, well, I, wish I, I can't think of it now. So I read a book a few years ago on how the church changed in the 60s and 70s with the Jesus People Movement and so forth. And the history of that is, is absolutely fascinating. Everybody should read that book. Uh, things changed in the 60s and 70s uh, so that the church changed radically. Well, all sorts of things have happened since the 60s and 70s, including this particular issue of egalitarianism. So you'll find it all, often coming out of that age. Uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, the forces began to be gathered in earnest for an assault on the traditional view uh, in the conservative churches. So, so we had, we've had this liberal view in the past, but now it's coming into our circles. So, for example, there was a Women in Ministries of, of, of Christ in 1978 sponsored by the Women Evangelical Caucus and Fuller Seminary. And it declared that biblical feminism had come of age. And one of their major major professors, a woman, led that seminar. Uh, Virginia Mullicott, some of you that have been around a while remember her name. Uh, she, was, uh, she said, Christian feminists seek liberty and freedom and autonomous power in order to serve each other out of reverence to Christ. 
So that was that was what she said. Her friend Leitha Scanzoni said, "We acknowledge that we have encouraged men to be to pridefully uh, prideful domination and women to irresponsible passivity. We call both men and women to mutual submission and active discipleship." So that's what he started hearing that term, mutual submission, and so forth, as it came into our circles, not the liberal circles, where it had been for quite some time. It started moving our direction uh, through these kind of writers. In 1981, Christianity Today published an article by Aaron Stauffer, pastor of an evangelical free church, in which he proclaimed that based on Galatians 3.28, all dominant submissive categories have been nullified by being baptized into Christ. So this is always a key verse uh, in the uh, for the egalitarians that that verse where there's we're all we're not matter of fact, let's turn there it's really would be a good idea because this is the one verse they all go back to uh, Gilbert Brzezikian used this as his key uh, we'll, we'll mention him in a few moments but Galatians 3:28 is the key verse of the egalitarian movement. says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So all roles, all distinctions have been nullified by coming into Christ. That's the idea. Of course, that didn't work too well, does it? If you look here, there are still slaves and free people. Right? Uh, there, there were, uh, what was the other ones? There's, Jew, there's still ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles. So that didn't change. Men and women, their, their gender didn't change. They're still there. Uh, but this is the verse they've used. And also contextual. So they, they wrap everything around this verse of Scripture. The context, as you know, if you look at this at all, it has nothing to do with roles of men and women in the church or home. It has to do with the with the with our, our position in Christ or what Christ has done for us in Him. So it's a, it's a positional sanctification, uh, even justification type verse. Uh, where the passages that we'll look at in a moment dealing with the uh, issues of men and women roles are, are in a different context. They're in the context of that men and women roles in the church or our home. This is not. So to wrap your whole theology around an out-of-context passage of Scripture is handy, but it's not very right. right? <laughs> but this is what people have done, and this is where people just look at that and say, well, there it is. There it is. There's no difference between men and women. And this has been the uh, flagship verse ever since. Can I just make yeah. A comment? Yes. Uh, I think there's also been the same error made, where the same kind of reasoning to say there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile in the church. Yeah. A position before Christ, that's true, but there's still a different ethnic. Yeah. Still ethnic Jews, ethnic uh, Gentiles, and so forth. Yeah. Exactly. And by the way, this is more of a round table, not very round. Uh, I think when we first started this 20 years ago, or whatever. Uh, I talked less and they let us do something and we had a table uh, of some kind, maybe it's round, and we had like three or four of us at the table and uh, that's, that's the way it started, so I think that's where it got its name. Over time, all the round table people have left me and so it's a straight table, so <laughs> whatever's going on, but anyway. Uh, in 1970s, Gilbert Brzezikian, you remember who he is? Brzezikian is a theologian, and he only had one, of Willow Creek. Okay, I think he taught at Wheaton. Uh, he was a weird little guy. Uh, recently, he's been debunked because of his uh, behavior towards women, so as well as, of course, Bill Hybels. But he was a theologian at Willow Creek. 
And in the 70s, uh, he wrote more than one book. And and in one of the books, he he claimed the same thing. Women in leadership became part of the DNA then of Willow Creek. And that's misspelled, Creek. Uh, I wrote back to the office because somebody changed that and nobody was there who could do it. So anyway, (laughs) this is the wrong kind of Creek, but you get the idea. It's a massive network of influence. Okay. So I was admitted early on that... uh, that without this egalitarian view of church, men and women in church, Willow Creek were never taken off. Of course, you know the influence of Willow Creek. It's not just a massive church in Chicago. It has a network that's worldwide. And the influence out of Willow Creek has been massive. And so uh, and so to think about that, and, and Grozikian uh, was the key leader of that as far as the- theology had to, had to do. And that's what he, he wrote about. So... Keep that name in mind. Uh, that, by the way, just reading an, an article within the last month, because of all the scandals and problems at, at Willow Creek, its, its attendance is down about half. Uh, they've had to let go of a big hunk of their staff, hundreds of people, and so forth. And uh, that doesn't make me sad, uh, because I do, I've never felt this church was uh, of any value to the body of Christ. I, it's always been a detriment, in my opinion. But nevertheless, uh, that's where they are. But this was their this was their early DNA. Some of you are old enough to remember <clears throat> that Hybels began his ministry as a youth ministry in Chicago area, and so he was gathering in all these young people who were coming out of these other backgrounds. Now, now, now think about this: going back again in the '60s and '70s, because so you young people don't understand this. But uh, back before the rallies for Youth for Christ and those types of things, uh, kids didn't have their separate thing. They run off and have rallies and and their, their own music and their own pep rat stuff. They didn't do that. And then also in the 60s and 70s with the Jesus Freak thing, the hippie movement and so forth, uh, the church tried to reach out to that group. How, how are we going to reach this group of people who are very different than before? And they found the best way to reach them is through music. And so they began to reach them through music. But after that era faded, in just, just a short time really, five or six years, those people had no place to go to church. So how do you bring them to church? Well, you brought them to church by changing your doctrine, which is primarily Pentecostal, primary Pentecostal doctrine, and you change the music from what from the, the hymns and, and the more serious songs to the, uh, uh, the Christian music that came along in that era. That's when all the publishing houses started. Uh, that's when the churches started to change. Bill Hybels came along in the mid-70s and said, we need, to fi- we need to found a church that will bring in this group of people. That's where Little Creek began to bring in this group of people that had been raised on, on uh, the pep rallies and the, uh, the, the Jesus Freaks type of stuff of music. we got to start a church for them. That began the radical change of the evangelical church in America. So whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, you decide. But, uh, but it's, you, if somebody lived in 1950, died and came back today and looked at the church, they wouldn't recognize it in many, many ways. Things have radically changed. Some for the better. So I'm not for the better, but uh, that's where a lot of that changed. So I, I'm kind of off track, but I thought I'd throw that in. <clears throat> okay, men and women are equal in Christ. So let's fast forward to, uh, I, I gave you some history. Let's fast forward to more modern times. By the end of the 20th century, 65% of middle-of-the-road evangelical clergymen favored the ordination of women. Now that percentage would be appear to be true of conservative evangelicals. Okay, it used to be the main line, the Fullers, the whatevers. Uh, that's more, more and more true of the 
ones that uh, are more conservative. When Bill Hybels stepped down, he was replaced by a woman. Now that fell apart too. If you know, if you're following the history there, that collapsed, and uh, and she was gone almost immediately. The whole board was gone. It was an absolute disaster. But but he was replaced by a woman. Then just recently, uh, Rick Warren uh, ordained three women. He's Southern Baptist. He ordained three women, and his replacement team now he just replaced. He's retiring. He's being replaced by a man and woman team. Uh, who she's a teaching pastor and he's a lead pastor at his church. So at Rick Warren's church, you would have to call it at least middle of the road, uh, fundamental evangelical something, somewhat conservative, even though there's a lot of issues there. Uh, so and he's in the Southern Baptist. So this is uh, this is what's happening in our circles. Of course, S- SBC is all. Uh, in arms about what to do about all this. And when Rick Warren went there at the convention this year, he told him that he'd done more than every Baptist in all the history of America, history of the world, had ever done put together. So how can you go against that, right? If you don't, if you don't like to go listen to a seven-minute video, you'll, you'll be impressed. Anyway, that's what's happening. In the late 1970s, Virginia Mullicott uh, cried for freedom for women. Twenty years later, she boldly declared that Paul contradicted himself and his teaching on women. <coughs> so he contradicted himself. So that's how we're getting our Paul. So it was, let's go around Galatians 3.28. Make this work. There's some seats up here if you want. Uh, there's at Galatians 3.28. But now we're saying no. Paul actually contradicted himself. He, cha- he changed his mind later in ministry. In the 70s, Malachach and Schizoni were darlings of the women's rights in the church. Today, they're darlings of the homosexual rights in the church. Both of them are now declared lesbians. Using the same interpretation of Galatians 3.28, they now claim to be homosexual evangelicals. Pretty impressive title, huh? So, so if you're with the, me at the last session, where I'm talking about once you, once you let go of, of the foundation of Scripture as authoritative and the hermeneutics, of literal hermeneutics, once you let that go, it may not look so bad for 5 or 10, 15 years. But down the road, things change. So this and this, this is an example of their life as they've changed. Yeah, I'm not going to teach you on the uh, scriptural part. That's for another day. Uh, in 1981, in a Christianity Today article, <clears throat> we read, it is clear that Paul was not the first to tell women to submit to men. Jewish women have been taught submission for centuries. Paul, ever careful not to upset the delicate cultural fabric of his day, encouraged women to commit continue to submit. So the only reason Paul said this is he didn't want to upset the apple cart. So, so get that. If that was true, then Paul is giving us falsehood in the inspired scriptures on how we should live. Pretty bad thing to come up with. But that's what Christianity... If you want to... I don't know how many... How many of you read Christianity today? None of it? Uh, one, one and a half. <laughs> uh, I read it all the time. Not because I like it, because usually I, I have it by my toilet. So, uh, I, not, not because I like it, but because it tells me what's going on. They're the middle of the road, organ, publishing organ of evangelicalism. If you want to know what's going on and where it's going, read Christianity Today. Every, every issue is articles that's telling you where it's going. And it's often very unpleasant. Okay? You can't really know what's happening in the evangelical world without that kind of input somewhere. Okay, so I just encourage that. Uh, sometimes you have to read things you don't want to read, uh, just to keep up on what's going on. You know, we can't hide in a in a cloister somewhere. 
We have to know what's going on. Uh, so if Paul is just telling us what we wanted to hear to keep everybody happy, that's, that's hardly biblical inspiration. Mm-hmm. And so we have to reject that. Now Kevin DeYoung, somebody's asked me several times, what is a decent book, a good book, on this subject from a complementary position? And of course you go back through the last 30, 40 years, there's many. Uh, but Kevin DeYoung has written one recently. Kevin DeYoung is not exactly in our camp. He's more of a together for the gospel kind of guy, gospel coalition. But he's on the conservative wing of that. And most of the things he writes are pretty solid. And, uh, and so if you've got some young people in your church in particular, this guy's trendy, he's cool. You know, he wears funny socks and weird glasses. He's cool. And he's, uh, but he's sharp. And young people listen to a guy like that. So he wrote a very nice book that really just lays right out, it's a small book, lays right out complementarianism as we would see it in Scripture. So I recommend it pretty highly. Uh, he, he defends the traditional understanding of male and female roles. I quote, It may sound archaic, if not fundamentally sinister, but God's design for the home is a thoughtful, intelligent, gentle, submissive wife and a loving, godly, self-sacrificing, leading husband. That does sound archaic, doesn't it? In our culture today. And yet that's what Scripture teaches. That's what complementarianism teaches. And that's what's being rejected by uh, the, the uh, egalitarians. This, this particular definition would kind of sum it up pretty well. So, I'm going to be talking about Beth Allison Barr in just a moment. So I'm moving fast. I'm going from history in 1969 to uh, 2021. Uh, what has there's changed? There's some changes going on. And here's what's changed. The earlier generations, the earlier writers, uh, were, were trying to follow the trends of the time. They were saying Paul contradicted himself. Uh, uh, scripture didn't really say that. Uh, Galatians 3.28 rules the day. Whatever they could come up with. Almost all those arguments, matter of fact, all those arguments have been debunked by good scholars in our camp. They're, they have no argument. And basically you walk away, if you believe in the teaching of Scripture, the literal teaching of Scripture, you cannot be an egalitarian. Okay? So there's a new generation coming along who has who's changed the foundation of why you can be an egalitarian. And there's two ladies I'm going to bring out to your attention uh, today. Uh, but one is Beth, uh, Beth Allison Barr. And she is a, a professor at Baylor University. Southern Baptist professor, at least she was, and uh, she is a historian. She's uh, she considers herself a great historian, uh, and she uh, in her book uh, she says on every page that she is a historian, and as a result of that, she can understand what Paul said, what Paul really said, what Paul really meant was not what theologians think, it's what she says he said on the basis of her degree in history. So that's a new that's a new wrinkle, and I was surprised the other day. I was flipping around the channels on television, and came across to I don't even know what it was, some kind of channel, normal channel, and there she was on a talk show, proclaiming her position on, on national television. So she's caught a she's caught a, a little bit of traction here. People are listening to her. Uh, I think she's extremely popular. She is a she is a leading evangelical feminist. She decries this understanding of, liber- of what women should do or, or biblical complementarianism. She says it's a corrupt interpretation. Complementarianism is a corrupt interpretation derived from our sinful human drive to dominate others and build hierarchies of power and oppression. 
it is a result of sin, white supremacy, and racism. So probably why she had COVID sitting around the house for a couple of years, she came up with these wonderful definitions that fits everybody's philosophy today, right? Everything that's wrong is white supremacy, especially white male supremacy, especially white straight male supremacy. So everything is, is that, that, that's the problem. And racism, so it's called all the buzzwords here. And that's the only reason why complementarianism has ever been accepted by Christians. She calls the passages that, we'll, that we could look at, we probably won't look at too many of them, but the passages in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and 14, those passages she calls texts of terror. Because white supremacist men have used those texts to terrorize women for centuries to keep them under control. So that they do not step forward and dominate their husbands, or step forward and try to dominate the church. So those are texts of terror uh, for women. And many women, she claims, have uh, come to the end of themselves, even denying Christianity, because of these uh, teachings of the text of terrors. Okay, the distinct roles of men and women. So here's a quick, was Paul merely accommodating his society in 1 Corinthians 11, or was he teaching eternal principles? Paul defends the latter and advances four arguments for distinct roles of men and women. Okay, and I'm not going to get all those today. That's, that's part of my sermon. You're going to get that. But what you get is this. The argument based on God's design. That's part of it. Owen Strand, are you familiar with him? Up-and-coming theologian, about 40 years old. Uh, he says this, The most controversial statement in our world today is, There are men and there are women. I don't think he's too far off. <laughs> He's coming to our church next April, I think it is. To when is your conference? March. So the women's conference is in March. Uh, so in April we're going to have a men's conference and fix all that. That uh, Susan's going to do. Just kidding. Um, anyway, we're going to have a men's conference at our church. She didn't hear me. So okay. Okay, good. Uh, anyway, and it's going to it's going to be a conference on what men are supposed to be. What 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 are, what are men supposed to be? We've lost it. We don't know what a man is. You know, every, every, we don't want to be like that, but we don't know what we are. Men are struggling. Think about young men. What should a man be? So, uh, but his point is well taken. Uh, this is a controversial statement. Well, who would ever thought this would be a controversial statement? Okay. Uh, okay, I'm not going to get into all the arguments here. Uh, because that is not the point. The word head, here's the other thing they've tried to do. Throughout the New Testament, we have the, the man is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. So one way around that is in recent times, we've had people come up, the egalitarians, and say the word head doesn't mean head as leader. What does it mean? Source. Source. It means source. You're not going to find that in any standard uh, lexicons of, of the past. That, that is a word that is not always translated with authority, not with source. Mouncey says it means utmost or chief as in a capital city, a capstone. And he's one of the Greek scholars of today. Uh, he, he's captured it pretty well. I found 70, it's found 76 times in the New Testament, always translated head. So the question is, is that in these passages up here, does it mean on those passages source? Or does it mean what it always means in Scripture? Headship or leadership. But that's another wrinkle in the egalitarian 
uh, approach. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on from this um, because that's not my point. Okay. Okay, you might I'm gonna move to another PowerPoint. Questions or discussion that you might have so far on anything I said, and I'm not very good at moving to PowerPoint, so. Uh, Speak up if you want to say something. I thought it was interesting, Gary, that uh, years ago when Wayne Grudem came out, and I know that you know he, he's not accepted by everybody, perhaps in the IFCA, but he's, he's interesting to read. I appreciate him yeah. in a lot of ways. He wrote a book on answering answers for evangelical feminists when evangelical feminism took over. He wrote a little paperback book yeah. that was like 30 answers. In the postlude to that book, one of the last chapters or postlude to the book, he warned, and that book was early 90s maybe, um, he warned that the same exact hermeneutic that brought feminism into the evangelical tent was the same hermeneutic that was going to bring homosexuality into the evangelical tent. It did. And I think that's exactly what we've seen. Right. I thought it was so prophetic what he wrote. Yeah, yeah. So the book's still in print. It's been revised. It's a very useful book. And he's a strong uh, complimentary. Yes, yes. Yeah, really appreciate that. Yeah. Other thoughts or questions? Yeah. I've heard uh, people talk about broad complementarianism, and I don't know, is there, is there a narrow, or what, what's the difference? Uh, well, I'm going to get into it a little bit here. Alison Barr uh, is, Beth Alison Barr is a strong egalitarian. Uh, Amy Bird who's the other woman I'm going to talk about, I would say she would consider herself a soft uh, complementarian or egalitarian, whatever you want to do it. And we'll see the difference there. There's a, there's a bit of difference, and I'll just give a jump ahead just to say what Bill uh, would say is there's still roles in the pulpit that men only men should fill. So on Sunday morning in the pulpit, uh, a woman shouldn't be there. But virtually everything else is open for women, including preaching at demand conferences, sitting on boards, uh, being involved in, in every form of leadership, except the pulpit. So she's soft in that area. But the reason she comes up with that is she is Orthodox Presbyterian. Now, I don't know how many of you know about Orthodox Presbyterian. They're one of the most uh, conservative of the Presbyterians, very ritualistic. Carl Truman, if you know him, is an Orthodox Presbyterian. And they're very ritualistic. They have, they, the pulpit is basically uh, sacrosanct. You can't touch it. Type of, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but they're, they're different than, than some. There. And so she, she brackets off that. Pretty much everything else is open. Good question. Yeah. Okay, this gentleman, I don't know if he's asking this question. It used to be one-point complementarianism, two-point complementarianism, and it, it dealt with uh, this submission only applies in the home or applies in the home and the church or and now we're taking a subset of this in, in the church yeah okay yeah so I've never heard anybody try to divide it from the home and the church but, but that's been out there okay 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 let's look at uh, Beth Allison Barr uh, and her book um, and that's what you have in your hand this is a book review I did on her. Uh, G3 just published this in their journal. So if you, get, if you happen to get that. Uh, it's the making of women, a biblical womanhood. 
how the subjugation of women became the gospel truth. So that's the name of the book. And she she distorts uh, biblical womanhood, in my opinion. So we'll look at that. She's a history professor at Baylor University, specializes in medieval studies, and that's going to play into everything we're going to say here in a few moments. Barb believes her background in history places her in a position to clearly see what most Bible scholars and theologians have not, which is that biblical womanhood is not scriptural at all, but a plot to suppress women. So what I just read a few moments ago uh, from Kevin DeYoung is merely a plot to suppress women. That's her thesis. That's what she wants to prove. Complementarianism is an interpretation of Scripture that has been corrupted by our sinful human drive to dominate others and build hierarchies of power and oppression. So that's why we have complementarianism. So let's look at some definitions. What is a biblical woman? What's biblical womanhood? Uh, God's design, God designed women primarily, and this is, this is her definition, which fits right in with the truth of what it is. Fits it right in with what the young just said. God, biblical womanhood is God's designed women primarily to be submissive wives, virtuous mothers, joyful homemakers. God designed men to lead in the home as husbands and fathers, as well as in the churches, pastors, elders, and deacons. And of course that can be distorted, right? And we can make it so women can do nothing except stay at home and that type of thing. And that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about their role in the home and their role in the church and what Scripture has to say about that. And we don't go beyond what Scripture says. That's as far as we go. Okay? So that's, that's what she, but that's the definition she's working with. She says it's the submissive relationship of the woman to men. That's what she rejects and makes every effort to deconstruct. So she, uh, she rejects biblical womanhood. This is the role of submission in the home and in the church. And she's doing make every effort she can to deconstruct it. How is she going to do it? That's our question. She recognizes that paternity, which is, uh, or patriarchy, I mean, it's the wrong word, patriarchy, is found in, uh, in Scripture. Okay, That's another word for complementarianism. But claims it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Therefore, when we find uh, uh, complementarianism, patriarchy, in the Bible, it's describing what was going on. It's not telling us what should happen or what should be right. It's just a description. The only reason patriarchy is taught in the Bible, she says, is that Scripture was written in a patriarchal world. So the Bible just followed the culture. It told people what the culture was, what was happening in the culture, and went right along with it. Old Testament and New Testament. That's her view. God's people adopted this pagan construction in Old Testament times, and Paul canonized it. That's a pretty handy view of Scripture, isn't it? Uh, and this again is a, is a she was a Southern Baptist uh, pastor's wife, and those things went sour at her church. Her husband was a youth pastor or something at big church. And he started uh, uh, adopting some of her ideas, and they fired him. And as a result of that, she became very bitter as part of what's going on here uh, because she, she felt the church was wrong. Even though she had signed on to a church that was complementarian, uh, she really felt hurt by a church that would stand against her views. And uh, so she believes that in the Old Testament, we're seeing something that 
that the pagan world was doing and, and the Jews went along with it. And then Paul came to the New Testament. He didn't want to upset the apple cart. So he canonized it and wrote it into the text of terror. So she asked this question, what have we been reading Paul wrong? Well, that's a, that's a real popular question today. Uh, the new perspective on Paul with N.T. Wright and others has said that very same thing. Uh, if you don't know about the new perspective, uh, all these kind of articles are on our website. You can go back and read them. But the new perspective basically said we have misunderstood Paul from the beginning. Paul was really not talking about the gospel uh, and the he was talking about how Jews and Gentiles can sit together at the same table. And so, if the passages in Galatians and Romans about the Gospel, uh, that was not about the Gospel at all. We've misunderstood Paul for 2,000 years. So, N.T. Wright set us straight. Still a lot of people like N.T. Wright, for some reason. Uh, but uh, that's a new perspective. He asked that same question. What have we been, been misreading Paul all along? Well, and so that's what he's at, she's asking. What if instead of Paul sanctifying the Roman household codes found in the text of terror, were mentioned by, they were mentioned by Paul only to reject them. So Paul brought them up in these passages and then only to knock them down, only to reject them. What, what if that's what he's doing? What if all these passages were interpreted through the lens of Galatians 3.28? See, it hasn't changed in 50 years. And patriarchy is now to, uh, now to be opposed by Christians. So complementarianism should be opposed by Christians, not accepted. What if that's the case? So that's our questions. Now she's going to go on to, to, to make the case that she's right. So what if Paul never said any of this? Bar assures her readers, a quote, because I am a historian, I know there is there's more to Paul's letters than what his words reveal. Now that's a little scary ground, isn't it? Yeah. I, I can read the I can read between the lines. <laughs> no? Yeah. So so we've all talked about you know read between the lines even of scripture. That's dangerous, folks. Uh, it, it's hard enough to read the lines. Yeah. Uh, if you start reading between the lines and adding your own commentary, that's where all this stuff goes astray. So she she's doing that, uh, and she but she has insight. So always be careful of somebody who has insight that nobody else has ever had. Uh, she has insight as a historian on what Paul really meant and what, what is between the lines. And so she's going to help us out. Here's her argument. Patriarchy is a result of the fall. So it did not exist in the garden. That's problematic right there. Cultural patriarchy has often been adopted by God's people has now been elevated by evangelicals since the Reformation the gospel truth. She has a real problem with the Reformation. It changed the role of women in the church and in the home. So up from, from the fall of mankind until the Reformation, uh, patriarchy or complementarianism was adopted by God's people. And it was wrong. It was a mistake throughout all those years uh, when that was happening. Uh, it's now been elevated by the Reformation. She's going to talk about how, in some cases in the medieval periods, uh, women did have a, a role of leadership. and she, she really likes that. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Scripture, rightly understood, she says, does not endorse any form of patriarchy. Its presence in the church today is not due to biblical exegesis, but has been constructed throughout the century by men 
who want to suppress women. <coughs> Moreover, patriarchy is akin to racism as well as white supremacy. <coughs> so you see, she's going for motive. Why, why would, it, would anybody want women to submit in the home and in the church? It has to be prejudice. Right? It can't be because it's found in Scripture. It has to be prejudice. So here's her argument. Uh, women leadership in the church, uh, in, in the Scriptures. I want you to go to Romans 16 for just a moment. This is, this is the biblical switch in her thinking. She's looking for a reason to reject biblical womanhood. And she finds it in Romans chapter 16, as does Amy Bird in the same passage. Uh, I, I preached through Romans two or three times over the years. And I've gone through it on other occasions on a Wednesday night or whatever. And, uh, and just recently, I'm, I'm doing a Bible, doing Bible survey, doing the whole Bible. I got up to Romans. And usually it's a survey, you know, two or three weeks on a particular book. But every time I get to Romans, it takes me three months. You know, you just can't stop with Romans. You know, just more and more stuff. But usually when I go through Romans, you know, you're kind of relaxing by the time you get to 15 and 16. Man, it's said so much, so heavy. Surely I can relax with this group of 20 names or so and just kind of rest, right? But this is the switch. These right here is where these women started thinking, we're wrong in, about Scripture in relationship to women. So here is her thinking... In verse, six, uh, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is in Caesarea, or Centria, Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever manner she may have need of, for she herself also has been a helper of many and of myself as well. Okay, she looked at that verse, and she determined that Phoebe was an official deacon in the church, that Phoebe was a leader in the church, that Phoebe was a teacher in the church, and so forth. Her view, and Amy Burge as well, is that the uh, um, that Phoebe brought the book of Romans to the Romans, which she may have done, but because she brought the book to them, she became the official interpreter of the book and the official teacher of Romans to those at Rome. And she had a church in her house in which she taught the Word. And she was an official deacon of that church there. Okay, And on the basis, first of all there, on the basis of that, she's determined that uh, women should lead the church. Okay, so let's do a little, real quick, inductive Bible study. Look at the passage. Uh, Phoebe is a her sister in the Lord. She's a servant or deacon. Okay, the Greek word there could be translated deacon or servant. Uh, we really don't know of any official uh, group of deacons at this point. By the time we get to 1 Timothy 5 or 1 Timothy 3, there are deacons. That's later on. Whether or not there was an organized group, we don't know. Whether there ever was an organized group of women deaconesses, we don't know. So she's jumping on that and making a big deal. But, let's say she was an official deacon. That's not the same thing as being a pastor or an elder. 
That's a servant. Not the leader, not, inf- not an authority, not the preacher, a servant. Okay? Then let's go on. There's no mention of her having a church in her home. There's no mention of her interpreting or even reading the book of Romans. Most likely she brought the book of Romans to them. We don't even know that. But let's give her, get, let's give her that. So on the basis of that, we get the idea then that she was an early church leader uh, on, a par, on the level of the pastors. Now she's not quite done. So we have Phoebe. We have Junia later on uh, in this passage. What verse is that? I didn't write it down. Uh, seven, okay. Okay, greet Junius. That word, and so she says concerning her, she what is my kinsmen and fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles. So now she says, look here, this woman was an apostle on par with the apostle Paul. Alright? Now that's a big jump for a couple of reasons. The, the name here in the Greek could be male or female. Okay, it could be either. And if it is, uh, if it's a female, in verse seven, see how it's translated here. Translations do different things. Here, here is it's male in the New American Standard. ESV, I think, is male. Is there a textual variant there? Not really. It, it just, uh, it just, how it could be translated here. And okay, so but let's let's say she's a woman. Let's give her a woman here. Okay, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles. So the word outstanding among the apostles. How do you translate that? So it it could be translated as one of the best of the apostles, or it could be translated as well known by the apostles. And I just somebody I have a ten page paper up here, uh, some scholarly report that somebody did on the study. When it's all said and done, there's no question she was well known. She was not a leader of, of the apostles. So, at the very best, you've got two conjectures. Maybe she was a woman and maybe she was uh, outstanding among the apostles, but not likely. On the basis of these two women in particular, there are several others here too, they, they make this leap that women should lead the, in the church and they should lead in the home. So that's, that's one of the re- directions she's going at this point. She's finding women in Scripture who led, and I've got some, some more here. There are, okay, I'm going to wait a minute on that. I think i got some other names. You, you know of women in the Scriptures that played a, a predominant role. Important people, Esther, Ruth. But you're going to really work hard to try to find one of those that has a role of leadership in the church or in Israel, except people like uh, Jezebel, (laughs) Athaliah. They were leaders. That's what we want, though, right? So you're going to have a hard time finding that. But but that's what they're doing. Yeah? Um, Just just to play the devil's advocate at work, in 16.3, I've heard, anyway, that the Priscilla Nicola team that some have tried to use her to say that like a husband and wife could be quote unquote pastors uh-huh. of the church. Yeah. Uh, we, have a, we have a charismatic church south of us that that's one of their scriptures. That they yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt that they work together. We find them several times in scripture. Uh, people have made a big deal about the fact that most of the time her name comes up first. 
you're, again, you're reading between the lines to say why. Uh, but So I don't want to make a doctrine on a question like that. But they worked together as a team. We know they worked with Apollos. That was helpful to him. But there's no evidence anywhere that they uh, led the church in, as far as leadership. Uh, they did have churches in their home. But uh, that is not the same as saying she was the teaching pastor or the lead elder. Again, you're reading into the text what's not there. But you're right. That's fact. A lot of Pentecostal churches, even going back in the 1800s with the holiness movement, a lot of them have women leaders. Yeah. Anything else on this part? I was, you know, I was thinking, even, even in the context here, there's nothing in it indicating he's talking to leaders of churches. He's talking to people that have held in high regard because of their faithfulness yeah. as the leaders in the, in the fellowship. Yeah. It's nothing to have to do with leadership here. No, and that's that's so, true. All these texts are out, so, they're out of context. Yeah. Yeah, so he's not talking about what a leader looks like. He's thanking these people for the yeah. service. So to yeah. <coughs> extrapolate something that's not there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's right. Good thank you. Thank you. Else? Okay, let's think about this for a little bit. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of observation to conclude, that if we're looking at the big picture of Scripture, that all, all the apostles were men, and all the Old Testament patriarchs were men, that all the Bible books of the Bible were written by men, that all elders in the New Testament church were men, that men throughout Scripture led with spiritual authority and taught the Word. Okay? So we're not making this up. We're not trying to suppress women. Uh, we're trying to show the roles that God has given us uh, within His church as found in Scripture. So, so when they say, you know, look, they, uh, people like uh, uh, these, these women here, these, uh, uh, Phoebe in particular, or maybe, maybe Junia, that, that these, are, these are people that uh, were leaders in the church and we just suppressed them simply does not fit with the big picture of Scripture. Now here, and this she gets kind of she's almost funny. If you didn't think she was serious, is there's another reason, another argument she uses. She says scripture has been on purpose mistranslated for to keep down women. Okay, so let's take a look. Translations of scripture, she says, have conspired to hide the truth, which she, as a historian, has discovered from the general public. The translators of all the script, all the translations. Now, I have on my phone here, uh, under one of my apps, 30 or 40 translations. You probably have the same apps. Every one of those people have conspired against women to keep us down, keep them down. All right. Uh, in particular, the ESV, she says, is a complementarian translation specifically designed to keep women out of leadership. So it was written about the time that the New International was coming up with their gender-neutral uh, translation. And so she believes that, that the ESV committee, on purpose, translated the ESV to keep women suppressed. And she could even tell us what was going on in the board meetings, even though she was never there. It's quite fanciful. But this is her view. This, uh, so, so read your Bible if you want to in English. But I'm a historian... And I'm here to tell you, that is not what it means. That's not how you should translate it. She probably never read a Greek text in her life. But all these Greek scholars are wrong, and they're doing it on purpose. Pretty nasty. Isn't this just a form of, I mean, it's unbelievable, but isn't it Gnosticism? Where, like, yeah. you're not enlightened like I am, yeah. then you're dumb. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, and but she's going to enlighten you. Yeah. If only you knew what she knew, you'd be okay. Isn't it an outworking too? I mean, Genesis, yea, have God said, right? Uh-huh. From the very beginning, and now the, the church is nervous that it's not all these problems that have come up in the Southern Baptist Convention, the abuse of idols, all this circumstance. They're looking for a, a place or whatever to deal with it instead of going back to say this yeah. is what Scripture is saying. Yeah, and, and that kind of reminded me of another issue. I don't, I don't think I have it here. But one of, the, one of the reasons, motivation she has for believing what she believes is the failures of Christian men in ministry. And we have, we've had a lot of that recently, haven't we? Just a lot of immoral situations, horrible situations. We can't deny that. Uh, we're, we're embarrassed by many of those. Uh, we can't deny that. It's a shame. I think there's many reasons why that's happening more today than it was in the past. But maybe we can talk about that or disagree. But I think partly it's the celebrity culture. We have elevated these men, and sometimes women, to such a degree that they can do no wrong. And nobody can, nobody can hold them to account. And if you, if you can't be held to account by somebody, uh, you're in a bad position. So every pastor, uh, none of us are celebrities, but every pastor must have a board of elders that will confront them and challenge them. Don't, don't ever go Lone Ranger. Don't ever think you're above that. Somebody, you got, and you've got to allow them to do that. Because there's some big guys and maybe women in our circles too that are, we really appreciate that nobody can talk to them about what they're doing. If you do, you're going to be looking for a new job. And that's not right. People should be able to confront us. Even if they're wrong, they should be able to confront us. And, uh, and we've got this celebrity culture, and I, uh, it scares me on a lot of levels. We need to, we need to tone that down. Uh, the, the very best of us are servants. Right, servants of Christ. Uh, we are not. We're not celebrities, and uh, I, I'm bothered by that. So there's there's reason for some of these things that's happening, uh, but but we have to admit ugly things have happened, and she she jumps on that, makes her jades her. Bars Adam that the scripture passages concerning women have been misinterpreted intentionally, and she's confident that her ability as a historian to correct. These misguided translators. So that's uh, that's her thing. <coughs> okay, she also denies inerrancy. Now you think that's kind of weird. Why? It is because evangelicals, she says, have embraced inerrancy. So keep in mind, inerrancy goes beyond inspiration. It, 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 it speaks to the fact that God's word cannot err. Uh, infallible and inerrant cannot err. It does not err. Okay, that's that's something we cling to as uh, as IFCA people and conservative Christians. But it, she insists that that we baptize uh, patriarchy because a plain reading of the scriptures of the New Testament, in particular, teaches complementarianism. So Bar must reject inerrancy. Because inerrancy creates an atmosphere of fear. Let me unpack that. We reject uh, inerrancy. 
says, this is what God says. Thus saith the Lord. That presents an atmosphere of fear for anybody who wants to challenge that. Okay? So if we're going to be able to challenge the traditional understandings of Scripture, we've got to have the freedom to say the Scriptures could be wrong. Or at least the way we've always interpreted them is wrong. And so she, she thinks inerrancy creates this fear factor that intimidates people into not thinking originally, not challenging the status quo. Kind of strange, but that's where she goes. Now here's where it gets real funny. Barr's arguments rely heavily on anecdotal examples, myths, legends, and unbelievable stories. Now remember she's a medieval church historian. That's what she is. Uh, and she teaches all the time on this subject, especially about women. The reader is given then all sorts of uh, primary fanciful, unreliable examples and stories of women in church history that prove that uh, they had authority uh, in the past. Okay? So I'm going to give you, I'm going to read a few accounts for you. It's from her book. So here's a number of names that's in your paper. Okay, so let me, let me read a, a few things. Now, keep in mind, this is the basis. This is the heart of her view. Uh, that she's going to go back and say, in church history, many women had positions of authority that they, that they don't have today. And she's going to tell us about some of those and condemn us for not following their example. So I'm going to read a few of these to you. Uh, this Margaret Kemp, uh, for example, 15th century, who, ex- who examined, who explained how Scripture did not apply to her, refused the so-called conjugal debt to her husband, and followed supposed mystical promises of God. She's one of the heroes. St. Paula, 4th century, who abandoned her children. She left her children on the shore, crying their eyes out, well, she got on a ship and sailed away uh, to, to found a monastery. That's one of her heroes. St. Margaret of Antioch, 4th century, had a devil... Now, these are, these are her examples. These are her historical examples. St. Margaret had a devilish creature, a dragon, eat her. But when she made the sign of the cross, the dragon burst apart and set her free. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit ascended from heaven like a dove to anoint her. See, that the Lord would do that for us if we would just follow what they did back in those days. Bar regurgitates an ancient myth of Mary and Martha. She, she identifies, Bar, by the way, Mary as Mary Magdalene. She regurgitates an ancient myth of Martha of Bethany who encountered her own dragon, which she claimed, uh, which she calmed, I mean, by sprinkling holy water on it. Now, there was no holy water when Martha was around that I know of. Right? Mm-hmm. But she did that. Her sister Mary was identified as Mary Magdalene as declared an, an apostle, preached openly and performed miracles. That's not found in Scripture. These are medieval myths and legends. Uh, 
her her argument historically is these things happened, may or may not have happened in the Middle Ages, but the Christians of the Middle Ages believed them. And therefore we should believe them. And therefore we should base our view of women and men on myths like this. If these women could step up and do these things, why can't they be allowed to do it today? That's her historical argument. Now folks, that's a little weak. Yeah. Right? So I re- honestly, when I got the book, I was expecting this historian to give me some real historical facts. Some things that happened in church history that, uh, you know, prove something. I didn't get it. These are myths, legends. You know, I just read a book about Daniel Boone. Nobody knows what Daniel Boone did. Because it's all legend. And, and you know, how many of us grew up believing uh, George Washington cut down the cherry tree? You know? Yeah, I still, still believe that. Yeah. And these are legends. I'm not going to base my views of life and theology on legends, but that's how she undermines the view of Scripture. We've cut women out of leadership today. They didn't do that in the Middle Ages, she claimed. And we need to go back to the Middle Ages. Yeah? I read a review, I don't remember if you wrote it, but they pointed out that it's kind of a you can't lose or you can't win argument. Because she goes in history and finds examples of women leaders and says, see, this is the way it should be. Yeah. Then she goes and finds examples of male leadership and see, patriarchy is always infected yeah. with her. Yeah, leadership. that's a good point. So. Yeah. Uh, she, along with that, uh, yeah, I'm going to move on. She believes she believes really in the superiority of the medieval church. Uh, if you read the earlier thing that I taught, uh, we talked a little bit about that. Uh, she believes the Reformation, although she agrees with some of its doctrinal changes, uh, she believes it returned the church to patriarchy because you had these women coming up in medieval times. Who are starting to catch their stride? They're starting to become leaders in the church. Uh, she claimed, uh, going back to her scripture, that Mary Magdalene was a preacher uh, on basis that she told the apostles that Jesus had risen from the grave. That's her evidence for women preachers in scripture. They they proclaimed something. They gave a testimony of something. Uh, medieval was the same. Uh, Bart positive the idea that women in medieval times found their voice in essence by becoming men. And women found holiness through virginity and abstinence from the married state. So remember the monasteries and the nunneries. Okay? These women went off to uh, to be uh, cloistered, many of them. Some of them lived in little cages. You probably read about those. Little, little boxes about one, just a little corner over here. They lived there their whole life. They were fed through a door. They never left. These became the saints of the medieval Roman Catholicism and spiritualism that is popular right now by Dallas Willard and others. They lived in those things and they ultimately had visions. Uh, And when they had their visions, they recorded their visions. And when they recorded those visions, they became spiritual... Uh, uh, masterpieces. Well, let, let me ask you a question. They stick you in a closet for 25 years, feed you through the door. You don't sleep hardly at all. You don't talk to anybody. You, you fast and, and beat yourself occasionally. You think you're going to have some visions? 
Those aren't masterpieces. Those aren't, those aren't wonderful messages from God. That's insanity. Hallucinations. So when I wrote my book, Out of Formation, uh, going back to all these different stories and stuff of, of where they've got these mystical practices, their own Catholic Church practices, practiced for years and wasn't brought into evangelicalism until the 1980s. Uh, that this is where they get this stuff. And this is what she's doing here. She believes these voices. And so these women became these, uh, these virgins who somehow found power through their, their state. They gained spiritual authority by casting off feminine roles and acting more like men. She laments that that's gone. She wishes that was here again. Because the Reformation changed it all. The Reformation came along and said, wait a minute, the role of women in the church and the home is what Scripture says. It's not what has been going on in medieval Catholicism for centuries. It's what God's Word teaches. So they, they changed that. She even laments that before the Reformation, women didn't sit with their families they sat with women and men and the men over here. But after the Reformation, they had to start sitting with their families. And that, that changed the dynamic of the, of the woman's role. All sorts of things like that. Before the Reformation, women could gain spiritual authority by rejecting their sexuality. Virginity empowered them, but the Reformation ushered in a new patriarchy. Patriarchalism. Okay? Any questions or thoughts? That's kind of weird. Anything you want to ask about that? But this is the essence of her book, which is being well received. I have a question from earlier. Yeah. Um, so I've uh, talked to a few people in, uh, in some different circles, and usually they bring up Deborah. How would you answer somebody who brings up, who would mention Deborah in the Old Testament as a woman leader? Yeah, she would be a woman leader. Right. Um, a number of things on Deborah. First of all, she wasn't a teacher. Right. So, and she wasn't a, a a king or a leader of the church in that way. And we also Deborah is part, is part of the book of Judges, where everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And I think uh, I think she was in a position because they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And that that's my answer to that. They're not following what God laid down. They're following what they thought they were doing. And remember, she she didn't even want to lead them into battle. She wanted a man. And she could borrow a man on, but somebody else was going to get the joy, get the uh, accolades for the battle. And that didn't end up being Deborah. That ended up being somebody good with a hammer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, yeah. So earlier uh, you were referencing Beth Allison Barr. Yeah. Talking about uh, oh, patriarchy came after the fall. Is what she said. Yeah. And we obviously recognize there are issues with that, that, there, that gender roles existed yes. before the fall. How much of the conversation from a biblical complementarianism position, how much of that conversation should be focused on gender roles are germane to the nature of men and women? They're not arbitrarily given. Yeah. They're germane to the nature. Yeah, I, I believe that is a strong argument. Of course, that's complementarianism at its best, and she would totally reject that. No. But that you're exactly yeah. So so we've we've walked away from that in recent times because. Uh, is so out of focus, out of uh, trend. Nobody, nobody believes that. Anymore. Women, you know, women are not women. They're, they're people who, you know, we don't know what a woman is. Yeah. Right? What is a woman? 
You know? So we've got all this problem. Uh, yet before, until recently, most of us recognized there was in there differences biologically, emotionally, with women and men. Not, not everybody cookie cutter, but there were differences. And we usually appreciated those differences. Uh, that's not true anymore. And that's sad. I think we've lost something there. But that I, I think it is germane to the argument. But you're, that, that brings up a whole set of other arguments that now you're going to go off on. This, I don't want to get too off track, but um, I've had some pushback in our church from the other direction of people that hold to head coverings. And they say, you're approaching the head coverings passage like a liberal. Culturally. If you were being consistent, then you would be an egalitarian. And sort of, so, do you have any thoughts on the difference between those passages? Yeah, and that in 1 Corinthians 11, where that's at, as you go through that 1 Corinthians 11, it might, and I've written on it, so I have some papers on if you want to look at it, but as you go through that passage of Scripture, you find that the head-covering word, often translated veil, is not veil. It, it's, uh, it is a word that... Uh, that the word veil comes up later. And it's, it's not the idea of anything like a hat. So if you want to be consistent with that in our, in our culture, wearing a hat doesn't fit. Uh, but later on he speaks of the hair being, I think, the veil. Yes. And so I, I think if, in, in the consistency with the passage toward the end of that section, I think he is saying that God has given women their hair as a covering, as a sign of authority, and it's the veil that he's talking about. So I think that's that's the best interpretation I can on that. So that wouldn't be a cultural interpretation; that would just be exegetical. Ex- is it that, in my opinion, ex- exegetical? Go back and do a word study on all the words used there for head coverings, and you find the end. Uh, he, he uses a different word than he did earlier on that, so that it, it isn't just cultural at all. But that is a hard issue for people. Okay, <clears throat> then she allegorizes Scripture. She says, taking at face value the plain and literal interpretation that we love, the household cult seemed to sanctify the Roman patriarchal structure, the authority of the petrofamilias, husband over husband, father over women, children, and slaves. Read, read the Bible literally, and it seems to be complementary. Right? So, 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 okay, don't do that. But when read rightly, through the historical twist, Paul wasn't imposing Roman patriarchy on Christians. Paul was using a Jesus remix to tell Christians how the gospel set them free. Really? A Jesus remix. Uh, so, so, in other words, we've been reading Paul wrong all, the, all these years. And if you did a Jesus remix, whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and what they're going to go back to is Jesus treated women differently than the culture. He treated them with respect. Uh, he had Mary uh, listening to Him at His feet. Uh, he, he spoke to women. He, he showed Himself to women at the resurrection. In other words, Jesus didn't follow culture. Jesus did that which was right. For that, if that's a Jesus remix, I'm all for it. But that isn't the same thing as saying that Mary Magdalene went on to be an apostle or a preacher or the leader of the, pre- leader of the church. That's not the same thing. We don't f- Mary was one of the greatest students of the New Testament, probably. But she didn't go on to lead a church. Right? 
So let's do a Jesus remix the right way. What Jesus did is did that which was right according to God's word, as we can look at it today. Uh, he didn't he didn't shy away from and and not, of any cultural issue. He went head on into it and did what was right. See on that note, Jesus treated women as women with the respect and dignity in which they were created before God. Everything else in the culture was distorted around that. He was demonstrating a proper relationship yeah. that a man should have towards yes. women. And when it came to selecting his disciples, they were all male. Yeah. And so those are significant in, 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 in Christ's um, demonstration and example of, of as he was setting up his church. He treated women with all the dignity and yeah. honor and respect that they deserve. Yeah. When it came to choosing the leaders for the church, it was men, and he had to do a whole lot of correcting there. Yeah. So that's, and that's the example we have. Right. So we treat women with respect. Uh, we recognize their abilities and, and giftedness and their ministries within the body of Christ. They're massive. Uh, we're not saying women can't do this, that, or the other. They can do all sorts of things. I don't, most, of, most of you guys who are pastors, what would you do without the women in your church? I mean, they, they are carrying a lot of load and doing a wonderful job in most of our churches in serving Christ. We're saying they can't be elders and they can't be an authoritative teachers in the body. That's, that's where we're lay, laying at. That's what Scripture teaches. So Titus chapter 2 hasn't been properly practiced in many yeah. churches. There's a dearth of male leadership, but I'm getting a lot of, in my ministry that I've had for all these years, there's a dearth of mature women who are not there to mentor younger women. Okay. Um, I thank God for the for the uh, NICE that I'm part of because really, as far as mature women, my wife has uh, Catherine uh, that, as an older woman, can speak into my wife's Christian walk. When I say stuff like that. 